Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. And on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we have another appendix. We're at the end of 2 Samuel. So we get all these little appendixes that got added on to the end of the book to capture uh, David's heart in his entire life. So these are, we're saying goodbye to David, kind of, but in Kings and Chronicles, we'll be back with David again. So don't get all upset. The song that's chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is pretty much Psalm 18. So if you have your fingers between them, if you're interested in the differences between the two, um, they are different. And there are some variations between Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel chapter 22. People get really worked up about that. But what we can see is a song that David probably wrote when he was a young guy. And over the years, the song changed a little bit. And anybody that does songwriting knows you change things here and there to get it how you like it. Um, and every song is kind of a framework. So it does show that there's some variation, and we get the song twice in the Bible. Um, here David speaks the words, likely, <clears throat> and what ends up in the Psalms is what he delivers to the high priest. Because people say, oh, there's contradictions between the two. Well, one is written, and it doesn't say it was delivered to the high priest, the one we're reading. If you go to Psalm 18, at the very beginning of the Psalm, it says this is the version of the song, or this is the song as delivered to the high priest. Um, so one got sang, this one was in writing, that, that accounts for a lot of those variations, and frankly, the variations are nominal. I'll point out a couple of the ones that are a little more significant. Both of them are songs of praise. So we've looked at David's life, we've looked at the sing that he's encountered, he's ran into some things. This is probably a song that David sung his whole life. And frankly, it's a song you're going to recognize the words of it, because it gets worked into every hundred praise song. You'll have something from Psalm, 2 Samuel 22. The writer wants us to, I think, see this in light of everything that's happened with David. So the first half of David's kingship, he was doing it the right way. Second half of his kingship, he's dealing with the consequences of sin. And I think the writer in 2 Samuel didn't want to end on that note. So he throws in this great psalm of praise kind of at the end as kind of a retrospective sense of gratitude that as we've gone through all these histories... There's a perspective with which we're supposed to see all these things that happened with David, and that is that God's had his hand in all of it. So either kind of a God did that chapter, like that we're supposed to see that in all of these crazy events of David's life, or you could call this the Heinz Feet on High Places chapter, because this is where that book was inspired from. Has anybody here read Heinz Feet on High Places besides my wife, who's read it like five, six times? Mandy. All right, so you guys will enjoy this because this is that chapter. Um, verse 2, and he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Okay, I'm not going to do this through the whole chapter. So as, you, as we take some time with these first two verses, you're going to think, Oh my gosh, we're never leaving here tonight. But I do want to slow down on just two verses because this song is absolutely amazing. 
And the way David does it, it's not only a musical song, but it's great writing. Like you can even see in verses two and three, like just the, the use of words is great, but it's also a visual song. And in the Hebrew, it's laid out like a grid. And it's got layers of depth to it that I think just for two verses, I want to unpack it. But then you could unpack the entire chapter this way too. And so just for the first two, I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do it through the rest of the chapter. We'll kind of move through it towards the end. But you're going to think we're, you know, this is going to take a while. The psalm starts with then Jehovah in verse 2 where it says, Lord, Yahweh. Notice in verse 3 it switches to God, my God, and that's Elohim. So it starts out with this focus on the Lord that David wants us to see, I think, as he's writing this. And it gives us 10 aspects of God, 10 attributes of God or descriptions. I wouldn't do a whole theology off of these two verses, but David's given us these images of who God is that we can then enjoy too. They tend to be kind of military sorts of references. Shield, stronghold, a horn would be something you'd blow to gather people, like an indicator of power. Uh, But the number 10 in the Hebrew, of course, would be the number of rule and governance. God is the God of David's life in the shape of governance. But we're going to do some gematria tonight, and I I just want to unpack this because it's stunning what David did here. Um, He outlines God's attributes, and they're all rooted in David's kind of aspect of a loving God, and it's what he's experienced or it's his testimony of who God is in his life, which I think is like the way we talk about God. This is what God's done in my life. Right? So here's an imperfect guy that we've seen over the last few chapters, last 10, 12 chapters. And we've seen that God has come through for David again and again and again. Even in his sin, he's been trained and disciplined by God. And David's perspective on that is God's been with me through all of it, even through the tough stuff. And we can trace David's life by the enemies that he's had. Like you think about all of 2 Samuel, and David's life starts with Goliath, then Saul, then the Philistines themselves, right? Then he's his own worst enemy when it comes to sin. Amasa, Absalom, Shimei, Zibai, Ahithophel, Joab, Sheba. I put a question mark by Joab. Is he David's friend or is he his enemy? His whole life has been one of kind of conflict. So you would think that he might be bitter at the end of his life, but when we read this, it's quite the opposite. Like David, we can celebrate God despite the bad stuff. And I think we can really draw that tonight. So there's a true king that's over the King David and that there's a real king behind him. And he's making that point. So David celebrates God with the complete mastery of the Hebrew language. Like we're going to get schooled in this tonight a little bit. So again, listen up to this kind of thing. So you got the Ten Commandments or the Ten Attributes of God, like God's the governing force. There's Ten Commandments, there's Ten Attributes to God. So David sets that's the easy layer. Right? Then you get to verse 2 where it says rock. In the Hebrew, that's selah, which means a cliff or a lofty place. Likely when he uses that word selah, and it's not the same selah as from the Psalms. It's a different spelling. Um, but that rock there is likely when he hid out in the caves and in the wilderness. David got used to living in those caves. He would have called them his selah. So they're, they're a kind of fortress because you can hide in those cliffs and those places. Then he uses the word fortress, which is synonymous, right? Mastud. Deliverer, palat. Actually, the word there is twice. It's palat, my palat, or an escape. The double use of palat then would be emphasis. We've seen that a lot in the Hebrew. When the Hebrews want to put an exclamation point on something, they just use the word two times. So it's palat, palat at the end of that verse. In other words, straight Hebrew on verse two is Jehovah, rock, fortress, deliverer, deliverer. 
Okay, you with me so far? So all the mys and everything, that's not in the Hebrew. That's stuff that gets added in for the English. It's emphatic then, but it takes on the form of a military cadence. One, two, three, three with an exclamation point. One, two, three, three. One, two, three, three. So that's just verse two. Okay, so a rhythmic cadence. Uh, <laughs> the second use or the emphatic is not in Psalm 18. So you can see that this is a written format, that he's doing something structurally here that doesn't actually go when he makes the song version. This extension there gets a setup. So you got a setup for verse three, which is verse two. It's like a title line. Verse two tells you the cadence, one, two, three, three. And then verse three does the same thing. So he switches to Elohim at the beginning of verse three. And then he does three lines that match the first line, verse two. If I'm getting confusing, it's because I'm just, this is the one thing where I was tempted to have a visual for you. So imagine this visually, one, two, three, 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 right? So one, two, three, three on the thing. But then you get to verse three and it's God, Elohim, strength, sir, or the, the, the rock of trust, Hasa is to seek refuge or be saved. Hasa is based on the root word of Savior. So you're going to see this happens. Then the next part is shield, horn, salvation. Salvation is also a derivative of the root word of Savior, right? So Savior, salvation, saved. Tower, misgab, refuge, manos, and then Savior, my Savior with an exclamation point. Okay, here's the format of it. Verse two is one, two, three, three exclamation point. Verse three is one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, three in the Hebrew. Like you can see where this would be laid out and it'd be beautiful like in the Hebrew on like a poster on your wall because I'm sure Hebrews had posters. But then he mixes in things like strength and horn are rhyming with each other, Megan and Karen, and then, mis and then tower and refuge are alliteration, misgab and manos. So the words go together in a very song-like way, if you're speaking Hebrew. But then you have this idea of from violence. From violence actually isn't in Psalm 118 because it doesn't fit the grid, but it's added in here off to the side. So verse 2 is 1, 2, 3, 3, and verse 3 is 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 3. You feel the song? There's a rhythm to it. And then we get all the threes. <laughs> this is where it gets nuts. At the end of each of those three lines, verse 2 ends with deliverer, but verse 3 at the end of all three of those lines is a derivative of the word savior. Savior, 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 but in slightly different ways. So hasa, yesha, yasa are all primitives of the root word yeshua or joshua. So, and then you get this idea of you got the ten attributes of God but you actually get with the one, two, three, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, three, each of those threes then being a derivative of um, Savior. In the verse three, you then only have seven attributes of God, which is the divine number, divine completion. In three sets of three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, three. Three is complete, wholly complete. You do three, three attributes going two directions. It's actually a grid of a three by three which has a total of seven attributes of God. So verse three alone is this perfect symmetry verse. Are you getting the level at which David's composing? Like he's so far beyond. You could just read that verse and go right past this. But the three times three is complete, complete with seven attributes of God, divine perfection. And if you add verse two, you've got 10, which is the governance of the life or Yahweh in verse two and Elohim in verse three. 
And then you get the yasa, so it actually goes down too. So you've got savior, savior, and then there's a double savior at the end. So it goes, even if you read it vertically, it goes savior, 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 savior. One, two, three, three. It fits in multiple directions. You see where this is like the written form versus the song form? There's some, David's doing stuff. He's like, this is the Notre Dame of the use of the Hebrew language. The level of expertise and excellence here, and he's just building off synonyms for what God is in his own life. But he sets it up with that kind of structure so it speaks to people in like 20 different ways. The layering here is so thick, and it goes through the entire song. This kind of composition, you could argue like there are humans that are that smart, right? Or you could say maybe David's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. I tend to think David was a composer. He wrote his whole life. This is his masterpiece. This is the song they put at the end of 2 Samuel because it's a masterpiece. But I just wanted to give you a taste, and I probably explained it poorly. I'm sorry about that. But I wanted to give you a taste at the level at which David's writing here. Like it's not just, oh, God's wonderful. It's God's wonderful, and let me put some mastery into what I compose for him. The amount of honor that God, David's trying to show God here is he's giving everything he's got for his God, his utmost, right? Every piece of skill he can muster, he's weaving it in here. And that's just the first three verses. Like, we got 48 more verses tonight. Does that make sense? Like, I hope for you, like, you're thinking, that's incredible. So we would need weeks to break down chapter 22. We're going to do it in the next... 45 minutes, all right? But if you really want to go deep, there's a lot of Bible study to do on this chapter, looking up each word, doing it in the raw Hebrew, and seeing what he's composing here. The other piece is when he's going one, two, three, three, and then he does that in a grid of nine with the three, three at the bottom of the grid, that's a fractal form, right? Verse two is the small version. Verse three expands it. The entire psalm likely would expand again in a fractal form. Like, it, it, my mind gets blown, and I can't quite get my head around it. And, and, I've, and I've spent all week on it. So we're going to keep going through, and I'm not going to keep getting into that level of depth with it, but this is an amazing psalm. And it's why it's at the end of 2 Samuel. Verse 4 says, I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so I shall be saved from my enemies. Or if you're in the 70s, we sing that. I will call upon the Lord. You recognize that song? Is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my end. And then you sing that in a round. Yeah, and then everybody, it's great. 70s, they knew how to do this stuff. All you need is some tie-dye and a little acoustic guitar. David's point here, and I'm going to get back to just David, what he's writing within all of this grand composition. God's worthy of our praise. Aren't you glad we serve a God who's actually worthy to be praised? Like, just stop on that for a moment. Don't just skim over that word. We don't serve a small God. We serve an amazing God. And our problems are generally our human-sized problems, but God's so much bigger than those. Why do we say God's worthy to be praised? I think David's saying that in light of the fact that he's had a lifetime of history with God. And he can say that God's always been there for me. Plus, there's this meaning of it, God being worthy of our trust, and he's worthy of all of these things. He's actually Yeshua. So there's no battle, offensive or defense, where God doesn't save us. That's the other thing. A tower is offensive. A refuge is defensive. A shield is defensive. And then the horn is offensive. And he just flip, like, it, it goes, there's layers upon layers in this thing. Verse 5, when the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. That's the Hebrew word for hell. 
The snares of death confronted me, and in my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Waves, floods, sorrows, snares, layer upon layer of how overwhelming this life can get. And David's been overwhelmed a few times. Like He's had to run from his kingdom. He's been hiding out in caves. He's almost got caught by Saul. Each of those times, David calls on the Lord, and somehow or another, David ends up back on a throne. It just, when David prays, God hears. What an amazing God. That God would hear our prayers is stunning enough. And for veteran believers that are walking in the faith, that answer to prayer is just testimony that I hope all of you have, where you can say, I prayed for things and the Lord answered my prayers. And if not, keep praying, it'll happen. And in verse 7, it says, in my distress. <laughs> Isn't that the time that we always forget to pray? that it's in the middle of our distress or in those struggles, that's when we forget to do things. When we're screwing up, that's when we don't pray. And it's probably because we're not praying that we get into messes like that. But it's at those very times that, G that David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to God. That you start, at some point, it gets so bad that you just say, God, I can't get out of this. And I think God delights in answering those prayers. He delights in getting us out of messes. Our distress isn't always our, our harm that's actually happening to us. A lot of times our distress is our fear of what's going to happen tomorrow. So we create our own distress. Instead of doing that, God prays. So I'm going to make a few quotes from Heinz Feet on High Places because I think it's taking a lot from this chapter. And if you haven't read the book, maybe this will tempt you because uh, Hannah, um, what's her last name, Hernard? She's a phenomenal writer, and she writes, Sorrow and suffering withdrew a little, as they always did when the shepherd was present, leaving him to talk with Much Afraid alone. Much Afraid's the main character in the book. But there's this idea that David's, you know, if you skim down to verse 34, you'll see where the name of Heinz Feet on High Places come from in the chapter. But just that idea that David calls out when it's, when it's the darkest, and this is the, the, this is the beginning of praise. He heard my voice all of David's life. That's the takeaway. David prayed, God heard him. That must make David feel pretty special, that whenever he prays, God hears him. And it does the same for us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And that's not, I, again, I, we have a huge thing right now worldwide with this prosperity gospel. We're not talking about like getting a better car. We're talking about the peace that God provides in our heart, the joy that abides the, the, thing, the gifts of the Spirit that God can add. However, I've also seen God provide cars, right? So it's, God can do whatever he wants. It, this is what happens when an almighty God hears the prayers of a very little person. Verse 8, then the earth shook. So when God hears the meek prayers of David, God's response is just overwhelming. And this is the kind of power God has. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. So we've left the one, two, three form, and now we're in a one, two, one, two form. I won't go too deep into it, but David's changing the tone and tempo with the meaning of the song, right? So it changes from that military cadence to this kind of frantic one, two, one, two. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, Coals were kindled. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. This is really great writing, just even in the English. The word bowed in the Hebrew is nata. It means to stretch out. So how does God respond to his servant? 
He bows the heavens also. He stretches out the heavens. He bows down. He takes all of heaven and brings it closer to David. To expose it, the word nata is to humble oneself, to be stretched out before someone as, as though you've laid on the ground in front of somebody, to be completely exposed. In this pat, in just in, chat, in verses 8, 9, and 10, there's six var- verbs here that when they're spoken in the Hebrew have actual like, um, is it onomatopoeia? They sound like what the word is. And they're sharp, violent sounds that you make. And Hebrews, like when they get angry, it really sounds angry, right? So they're those kinds of words that are here. Hard C's, hard T's, right in the middle of the word, right? It sounds like a storm when you do this. The word come down is yarad, right? It means to descend or to sink down or to lower oneself. What does God do to answer David's prayer? He actually comes down or descends himself from the heavens. This is kind of amazing. He came down with darkness under his feet. God actually comes into this place of darkness that humans have made in order to save his servants, right? And you can see where this gets to be prophetic or or messianic really quickly, right? God lowers, God comes down, God walks with us in the darkness. So his feet touch the earth in the darkness that we've made. Verse 11, he rode upon a cherub and then flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. After God comes down, he then flies up. Well, that doesn't make sense unless you're thinking about Jesus, right? The word flew there mean, it actually means to fly, fly away, <laughs> right? Just literally fluttered back up into the heavens. Power, clasping rings, rushing wind, all this sort of thing. Uh, think of the word fly as the idea of a jet engine just blasting air and power through things. The wings of the wind. The word there is ruah. It's the same word that the Old Testament's used throughout for the spirit, the spirit of God. It's a rushing wind that comes in, blowing things away. It's powerful language. He made the darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Darkness, when God's around, darkness has to live in a tent. Right? And the light just powerfully moves aside the darkness. Remember, David's in that storm that God's, instead of grabbing David out of the water, he moves the water because he's that big. The ruah just blasts through things and the light of the word shines and sends the darkness on the run. From the brightness before him, the coals of fire were kindled. So far in the Old Testament, the word kindling or kindling has only been used for God's wrath being kindled. David, for the first time in the Old Testament, uses it for something kind of different. That before him, the coals of fire were ignited. Now you think of this messianic. What does God do when humanity's troubled? God lowers the heavens, descends himself, walks on the earth, then up, he fly flies away, and what he leaves behind are light everywhere to where darkness has to hide from it, and dark waters and thick clouds of skies, and from the brightness before him, coals are ignited. The the ruah, the Holy Spirit, just ignites people everywhere on the earth. That's what God does when people are in trouble. A little bit, you could say, overkill, but I'm really glad we have that kind of God. He's using terms here that God stirs everything up to save one of his servants. He'll move heaven and earth. God hears prayer. He shakes the earth. He comes down to it. He flies back up. The Holy Spirit, Ruah, is moving. And then he makes darkness move aside and light kindles everywhere around him. Great writing, don't you think? 
Then in verse 14, the Lord thundered from heaven. Again, powerful language. And the Most High, it's interesting, he's used Yahweh and he's used Elohim, but here he uses a third name for God, Most High, and it's Elion. Frankly, I love Elion. I don't know why we don't use it more, and that's because it's pretty rare in the Old Testament. But he uses Most High. Elion uttered his voice and sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his breath of his nostrils. You get a sense of little David being in trouble and an almighty God absolutely obliterating the trouble around David. This is just stunning. Likely he's remembering the Red Sea here, like as David's writing this. Like the Egyptians were in trouble and God parted the Red Sea. Because when it says the channels of the sea and the foundations of the world, uh, the channels of the sea, frankly, scientifically, David had no idea that the ocean actually has currents that move around in it. And David wouldn't have known any of that. So I think he's basically saying there's something under the sea that you can now see or be exposed to. Those tidal patterns. Foundations of the world, we actually have tectonic plates. But here's the thing. People look at that verse 16 and like, there's a weird trend right now that there's like flat earth Christians that are out there and they use verses like this, but it's clearly in a poetic song. So you don't even know like, what are they thinking? But I think David's thinking here, like the idea is when I'm drowning in the sea, God does so much more than pluck me out of the sea. He moves the sea itself to get it out of the way for us. Like that's just... He's flipping the imagery there. David writes poetically. I think unwittingly he's hitting on some scientific truths, but I wouldn't use this as some sort of scientific claim in the Bible. Don't Please don't go flat earth on me, okay? There's little too much evidence on that. So um, remember this is a poem and a song that's being sung. I don't think David's trying to be accurate in that sense. So this is what God does for us. God can actually change creation when he needs to. It's an attribute of God. The men marvel, saying, what manner of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him, as Jesus calms the storm, Matthew chapter 8. David doesn't just pluck David out. He moves the whole sea and the ocean around him. Dave Guzik says it this way, when things aren't right for his beloved, all creation will see his passion and urgency to meet the needs of his beloved. God does everything to meet our needs. Our only mistake is we don't take the time to listen or watch what he's doing. Word most high, Elion, is an ancient term. David's using language here that would make people think back to Genesis 14, 18. Elion is the god of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek was a, a priest serving Elion or Yahweh well before the establishment of the temple and the tabernacle. Genesis 14, 19, Elion is the God Abram starts to serve. It's just another word for our God. But it's a, it's a term that Old Testament-wise got used way back in Genesis and got kind of replaced with Yahweh because God gave Moses the term Yahweh. But David's going all the way back when he uses that term. All of this for David, a little shepherd boy, hanging out, taking care of the sheep. In the next few verses, we're going to see God continues to, or David gives God the credit. These next verses start with he, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did this. So as we talk about David and look at his life, David's pointing us back to the Lord God. Man, David, look at all you've done. Uh-uh. God did this, God did this, God did that. So verse 17, 
He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. I couldn't do that on my own. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out of, into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Peter could say the same thing, right? Most of us could say the same thing. Here's where I was. Here's where God pulled me from. What a blessing for those that are raised in a godly home and never feel that sense of drowning. David had felt that sense. They were too strong for me. There were many times in David's life where he thought, this is the end. I'm done. He's hiding behind a hill, and Samuel's got 3,000 elite soldiers, and they're about to get trapped. And then a messenger runs up and tells Saul he's got to go. And David's left surviving the, what he thought was the last day of his life. Happens again and again and again. How long do we keep trying to solve things on our own when we have the power of a mighty God that wants to help us? Over and over. David and God had a relationship, and that relationship is based on the salvation that God continually gave David. Over and over and over again. I love the phrase that he delighted in me in verse 20. Kafates means to delight in something or to take pleasure in the task itself. Why does Steph like to do certain things? Because it gives her pleasure in the doing. And that's different than doing something out of obligation. Why does God save us? Because the very act of saving us makes God happy and delighted in his heart. He delights in David. Why does God respond to David's prayer? Because it's his delight to do so. Like, why do kitty cats chase laser lights? Because it makes them happy. Why did dogs get the zoomies? Right? They're just burning amazing amounts of energy for no apparent reason. Why do they do it? Because zoomies make dogs happy. Right? So you can apply that anywhere. That he delighted in something is to exert massive amounts of energies for no apparent reason other than it makes us happy. And that's that image of God delighted in me. Why do parents give presents to kids? It's not because it, we're, we're not saving money when we do that. It doesn't give anything to us to give stuff to our kids. But parents give things to their children because they delight in how their kids respond to it. They want their kids to be happy. God wants his kids to be happy. And as this world comes in and pressures us from all sides, that's David's testimony is God delighted in me. He gave me things because he loves me. He wants to see that pleased kid. It's not that God needs anything in return. Just like a parent, we give a Christmas present, we don't need anything in return. We really, it could take 25 years before a kid says thank you. We don't even need that. God just loves to see the delight of his children. Hines feet on high places. The shepherd laughed. I love doing preposterous things, he replied. Why, I don't know anything more exhilarating and delightful than turning weakness into strength and fear into faith, and that which has been marred into perfection. He does it because he delights in it, the act itself. Why does God exert so much energy and, and power in our need? He does it for fun. That's David's argument. David's facing the enemies that are all around him, and they think they're fighting David. What David knows is you're not fighting David, you're fighting God Almighty. That's why it never intimidated David to go into a battle. The only time he lost in a battle is when he didn't show up for it. 
So he argues this idea and, and he expands on it. This is how God rewards David. Verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. Okay, theologically, don't get too tied up here. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I've kept the ways of the Lord, and I've not wickedly departed from my God. You're thinking, wait a sec, Bathsheba? Do you remember that? For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Okay? So some people respond to these verses by saying, clearly David wrote this before Bathsheba. Like, this is a younger David song. Or, there's another way to think of it. I think if we keep reading, we're going to see that, um, you know, if you go down to... Uh, I don't think David was ignorant to his sin. But having sin in our past doesn't mean God sees us with that sin for the rest of our lives. Back in chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan says, God put away David's sin. So I think he could have wrote this after Bathsheba too, or at least he kept singing the song after. He wasn't so ashamed to sing this verse, right? Maybe David takes that truth as it is, that when God puts away our sin, we're sin, we're sin free. When we're forgiven, we're forgiven indeed. When we're clean, we're clean according to God's standards, not our own. It says, he recompensed me according to my righteousness. Well, that's still true even in sin, right? Did God recompense David for his sins? Yeah, David paid some huge consequences for his sin. And that's because God loves him. And he's going to discipline him even in those things. So David, there is there, notice at the very end it says, my cleanness in his eyes. That's an important conditional statement that we're only as clean as God tells us that we're clean or sees us as clean. It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness. God determines the rightness of the human based on the human's heart. The New Testament agrees with this, 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of everything as being from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We're not in and of ourselves there. So David's claiming, I lived according to the Lord's law my whole life. Part of that is under the Mosaic system, if I sin and then give sacrifice for my sin, that I've then lived according to the law. So I can make mistakes, but then you, do the, you go down to tabernacle, you do a burnt offering, and that sin's erased from your ledger. So David can end his life theoretically and say, my ledger is clean. That's a lot of works-based theology, but Judaism is work-based theology. So again, as Christians, we might struggle with those last few verses, for a Jewish person, even Paul said, under the law, I was spotless and clean. So Jewish people all the way into the first century, we have documentation. They thought that way, that if I do everything in the law, I have a clean slate. And I can, I can therefore do the right things that God says. And then when he looks at me, he sees a clean thing. It's like washing your clothes. They stink before they went in the laundry, but after they come out of the laundry, they don't stink anymore. And that's what the offering system that David was part of at the temple was there. So maybe he's just grateful for that. Or you can just have spiritual conundrums here with these verses. Why does David think he's perfect? I think as we keep reading, we're going to see he doesn't think he's perfect. But he's clean for a couple reasons. So here's key number one. Our role in life is to see the, way, the ways of the Lord and then to do them. In this verse, it says the ways of the Lord. We're supposed to understand what God's way is and try to do it. Right? Key number two is the ways are actually God's law. In, in the verses, it says the judgments and the statutes. 
We actually do what God says according to those things. Then the key three is there that God forgives, that sin's actually gone, and then blamelessness comes. Because he's not going to blame if we've done what we're told. And then key number four is we're clean as God sees us, and we're not the judge of that. It has to be in his eyes. So again, under a Judeo system, that makes a lot of sense. In a Christian system, we're like, actually, our sins have already been forgiven under Jesus Christ. That was the sacrifice. But we can still say, when God looks at us in his eyes, he sees something that's blameless because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. So David knows he's not perfect. Verse 29, verse 33, if you want to read ahead, he knows he's not perfect. He understands there's mistakes. But he's trying to get that reaction, I think, out of these verses. Because you're thinking, wait a second, we know that there's sin in this guy's life. And I think David had some humility there. The question is, how do we get the kind of purity and confidence in our purity that David has? How do we walk around knowing that we're right with our God? Because I want that, right? It says, I kept myself. 2 Timothy 2.21, if a man purges himself before these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work. When we come before God and we're humble before God, when we pray to him in our need and he moves heaven and earth to save us, we know we have a relationship with God and his promises are going to be held true. And we can have some confidence in that. We don't have confidence in our perfection, but we have confidence in God's cleaning of us. And in that sense, what's left is for us to try to do the best we can. We keep ourselves. And David says, I kept myself. And then he says, I kept myself from my iniquity. So it's clear that he knows he has iniquity. But we try to stay away from that. All of us have issues, right? We all have things we struggle with. But we struggle with that because we love our God. It's not that we necessarily have victory every single day, but we try to wrestle with it like David did. That's how you get that confidence. A godly person's always on guard against their own sin. They're always doing that. We keep ourselves. We tend to our family. We tend to this fellowship. We look out for one another. And that's a model to the world of what God wants people to live like. And we do it faithfully. And then verse 29, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. There's something essentially true about what David's saying. This is, these different situations are true in David's life. Again, he's bearing a witness or a testimony, but it's a kind of principle. You sow something, you're going to reap something. If you're nasty to people, people will be nasty back to you. And God's no different than that. If you disregard God completely and just walk through life doing your own thing, God's going to treat you the same way. And that's, <laughs> there's no sugarcoating this. David says it like it is. And I love that. There's a contemplation here in the middle of this song. So verses 26 through 28 are kind of like a bridge. They break the cadence of the rest of the song. So everything's trucking along in a one, two, three or a one, two, one, two. And then you get to these verses and it just kind of stops and it goes into like a prose, almost like a spoken piece in the middle of a song. So you see this contemplation in the middle of this. Uh, and David notices that God acts for David and he does the same thing. So in the same way God intervenes for David, he actually intervenes against Saul. Like David's seen this. Saul was a devious guy. This is, from what you judge, you will be judged. From with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you, Matthew 7, 2. This is a principle. God's going to respond to us like we do it. 
forgive me my trespasses as I forgive other people. Like it's a conditional kind of thing. God looks at how we act in our life and he holds us to the standard that we hold everybody else to. That's tough if you're a picky person. This is a principle of justice that we get what we give. Interesting thing here is you might say, well, wait, God's not devious. So David does do some things in verse 27. With the devious, you'll show yourself shrewd. Rightly speaking, there's two different words being used there. Because God's not devious, it's not in his nature. Like, he's not a devious God, right? So David actually kind of moves around that. The word devious is ikashai, which is to be crooked or distorted. It's not in God's nature to be twisted. Literally, the word means twisted. So with the twisted people, and then it comes back, you will show yourself shrewd. The word there is pathal, which means twining. Twisted is what happens to thorns and brambles. They're just a knot. But twining is what happens when you braid your hair or you make a quilt. Humans get twisted, but God weaves. And he builds something beautiful even out of those tough situations. It's what he did with Paul. The beautiful story of David's life is in part because God was responding to Saul by weaving something new with David. Or the idea of God takes all things and works them for good. Because God's not an evil God. He doesn't do evil. But he takes evil people and he can use them as part of a narrative and a story that glorifies his name. It's beautiful how David puts that. Humans are twisted. God entwines that into some other kind of thing. We twist, he weaves. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Same principle that David's saying. I think this is where Peter gets that. God actually targets the haughty in verse 28, but your eyes are on the haughty. God looks at prideful humans and they bug him. You know, and they just, I think God loves that Absalom got hung up by his own hair, right? He's walking around all prideful and thinking he's all that and God lets him have it. And there's something that makes God, I think, delight in that just as much as saving the humble when they don't deserve it. Which are you, humble or haughty? Do you want to be targeted or do you want to be saved? So I think that's one of those truths. Again, David doesn't, David's a man of war. He doesn't like make his psalms cushy. These are kind of hard to hear sometimes. Verse 29, this is the one we like to memorize, right? Not that he'll go after the haughty, but verse 29. We like this one. This is, For you are a lamp, O Lord, and the Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I will leap over a wall. David was an amazing man of war. Like this guy took out Goliath with a stone. In the, in the armies when they were charging, David was at the front of that army. He was fast. He was athletic. He was known for his military prowess. And in that, I think in verse 30, he's saying, God gave me those strengths and gifts. Everything I do and everything I did well, it's because God helped me to do it. We don't need perfect lives, but we do need a perfect light. I can go through a lot of crap if I can see my way through it. When things get really dark and depressing, it's usually because we're not seeing the light of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was light. And God can say those up. It's like having the right cheat codes. You can get through the hardest computer game ever if you've got the cheat codes. And when God provides light in our life, he gives us the cheat codes. And we get through life just a lot easier. We water by heaven instead of doing it by foot. Perfect light. We don't have to be strong, but we do have to have a strong master. 
And in that sense, we can just have joy even in the dark times. In fact, as other people are going, man, how are you getting through that cluttered room? Maybe they don't know that we have a perfect light and we have night vision. And we can just see right through the darkness. And then in that sense, we just kind of hop through. And that's where David's saying, like, he's actually running faster. Like, for by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. I can do anything with God. With God, all things are possible. And people think that somehow that's David doing it. David's saying, it's not me. It's the Lord made it all too easy for me. God's word is what he has. And the world changes around him, but the word remains. And the same thing's true today. This world gets messy, but the word of God remains the same. Can you just think that 2 Samuel chapter 22, people were studying this same chapter 3,000 years ago. Sitting in a room just like we are, going through it. With, that was a rabbi back then. Now you got Sean. Sorry about that. But they're going through the same chapter we are. We've been doing this for 3,000 years. And look at how the world has changed in that time. One thing remains the same. The truths of God's word just never change. Verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield to all who trust him. For who is God except the Lord? Who is Elohim except Jehovah? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he sets me on my high places. In the King James, that's hinds feet on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. How does David walk through the dark room with a perfect light? The word of God lights his way. And he equates God's words in the scriptures to what makes his life so easy and how he can dance through all these hard times. No other text in human history has ever had as much scrutiny as the Word of God. Even today, think of the scrutiny the Bible gets, and it still holds up. Like, if you put this much scrutiny on Plato's works, you would cut a thousand holes in it. But you got people intentionally trying to put holes in the Bible. They got nothing on it. It's perfect. And they've been doing it for years. You can put a magnifying glass on God's word and it's just level after level of amazing revelation and truths that just hold true forever. When we put God's word into practice, like millions of people have before us, it actually helps our life when we do what the Bible says. The problem is we got hearts that don't want to do it. So we can have really simple precepts like do this and do that, but everything in us fights to just do what God says. But when we do it, we get the result of David. You get the joy of the Lord. That's the trade-off. Same then as it is now. It hasn't changed. God's word hasn't changed. Well, we've changed it into English, but we can still go back and look at the Hebrew that David himself read it in and wrote it in. When we do what God teaches, we don't just survive attacks, verses 26 through 28. We have a light that gets us through, verse 29, and we thrive and live well beyond those attacks, any human capacity for life that we have, verses 31 through 35. Like, that's how life works. This is David's testimony. This is what he's telling. This, at the sum total of his life, if we trust in him, if we don't miss that link that's in here. If we trust in him, end of verse 31, if we trust in him, all of that unlocks. Super easy. Trust is the only real action that humans have to take. It's the only real battle that we fight. It's just to rely on God and what he has. Go where God calls us to go. The Spirit's encouraging you to go bless this person. Just go bless that person. 
the Spirit's calling you to go over here or do this or do that or go to a Jewish cleansing, do the things the Holy Spirit's calling you to do. He makes my way perfect. It's not that David's perfect. It's that God can do wonders with our life when we just follow the path that he gives us. Lots of my's are added in. Remember those other verses where he did this, he did that, he did this? In these verses, he used the same kind of phrasing, but he takes and he says, my, 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 my. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of the dare. Sets me on high places. So again, that's what God does for us. God is essential in nature, and that essential nature of God makes our lives different and changed. It's just beautiful how he's framing all this. Lots of my's. The better translation here is that in verse 31 is, again, take out the, the words that aren't in the Hebrew, and it's his way, his word, his shield. Verse 32, his rock, God is strength, power, making his way perfect. God does that. Like, again, you can just feel the rhythm of this that David's setting up. Verse 34, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets us on high. To sum up what David's saying here, <laughs> I have a perfect path. I'm not perfect, but God does things where I can do things that I couldn't do before. Not because David did it, but because God gives him things like the feet of a deer. When we were in Glacier, we were asking about the mountain goats that would climb on the sides of these straight up cliffs. And you're like, how do those little critters stay on there? And the little guide was like, oh, I'd love to tell you. These little mountain goats have like suction feet hooves. It's amazing. And they suction foot themselves to the side of the hill. God just made them that way. And when David's saying this, he's saying there's things that seem impossible, like the deer on the side of the mountain, that we don't even understand that's how God made them. So when David's conquering the Philistines, when he's beating Absalom, when all these things are happening in his life, it's not because David did it. It's that God made him a certain way and encouraged him and, and fed him the path. God did all that. Then there's that phrase, bend a bow of bronze. You see that? The end of verse 35. It's not just about strength here. Bronze is a metal that has been associated throughout the Old Testament with judgment, trials, dealing with the messiness of humanity. So when you look at a bow of bronze being bent there, there's actually this kind of idea of making a weapon or preparing a weapon to fight those earthly sins. So when it came to administering justice, that was even something that God got through the strength of the Lord. We'll follow God into any battle, and we do it with boldness and confidence. Another quote from Heinz Feet. Then she looked at the shepherd and suddenly knew that she could not doubt him. She could not possibly turn back from following him. That if she were unfit and unable to love anyone else in the world, yet in her trembling, miserable little heart, she did love him. Even if he asked the impossible, she could not refuse. Something about God that's just too mighty and too powerful. I'm not going to pass up on that relationship. The whole world can pass, heaven and earth can pass away, but the word of the Lord remains. That's what I'm going to stick to. Like deliberately, boldly, I'm going to bend the bro of bronze to do that. Verse 36, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. Gentleness there in the Hebrew speaks of humility. That 
descending of heaven that we got earlier in the chapter, that coming down to earth, the stepping, making a footstool of darkness, God coming down into our world when he doesn't have to, is a humbling of an almighty of God. To even deal with us is somehow condescending for God. God shouldn't have to deal with us little ants, but he does. And that desire of God, that humbleness, that gentleness, is part of what makes us greater than we are. We're important because God Almighty thinks something of us. Our worth is entirely wrapped up in him, not in ourselves. Praise God. Praise the Lord. God's grace makes everything easy. You've made me great. You enlarged my path under me. Well, Jesus says there's a straight and narrow path. Yeah. When you start walking on it, suddenly it's not as hard to stay on it anymore. God actually enlarges it out. Think of the imagery of this song. I'm in the storms, I'm down in the depths, the seas are raging, and God's breath comes in and just blows the sea away to where I can see the bottom of the ocean floor. He actually takes away the waters. And you're walking through and he widens those out. Again, David's probably thinking of the Red Sea here, just spreading a path out before the Israelites where a million people can walk through the Red Sea. That's what God does. I don't know about you, but I'm going to stick to that. I'm going to follow that. Why does God give us so much love? Why does he do that? Verse 38. I've pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn my back again until they were destroyed. I've destroyed them and wounded them so they could not rise. They've fallen under my feet. David clearly doesn't have issues with killing God's enemies. Like we've seen that, right? Different era of history. When we kill sin in our life, do we feel bad about it? And I think that's the imagery here too. He's doing it in the physical world. We do it in the spiritual world. I don't feel bad when I conquer sin. I'm proud of it, dang it. I'm, I'm happy that crud is out of my life. And David's kind of reflecting on it the same way. For you have armed me with the strength for battle. You've subdued me under those who rose against me. You've given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. God spreads out the heavens, same word, and so that David can spread out the enemies of God. All of David's victories on earth, God gets the glory for every single one of them. As David's job was to vanquish the enemies of all of the neighbors of Israel, at least make them so they're not going to attack God's people, subdue them is the word that gets used. We have this idea here. Verses 38 and 39, it's I, I, I. Verses 40 and 41, it's you, you, you. And then verses 41 and 43, it's those, they, them. See how he's using the different contexts? What comes between us and the world is God. It's structured that way in the song. It's built in that way. There's me, me, me. There's you, you, you. There's all of the world that's out there. I'm so glad, glad that God's between me and you. We think the world might be attacking us, but the world's got to get through God to get to us. Good luck with that. We think we have to do battle with the world. We don't. We have to do relationship with God, and God will do battle with the world. Like, it's an interesting way that he's setting this up. They can't get to us unless they get through God, and we can't win their hearts unless God does something to win their heart. God has to be the intervening force between his people and the enemies of God's people. God alone fights to reveal character in a person. He is alone the one that can remove the storms and give people clarity. He's the only one that can melt a human heart. So we pray for that. Lord, melt their hearts. Make them soft to the ways of God. 
bring them close to God in all ways. Every acceptance of his will becomes an altar of sacrifice. And every surrender and abandonment of ourselves to his will is a means of furthering us on the way to the high places to which he desires to bring every child of his while they're still living on earth. Hannah Hernard, Heinz Feet. That's God's will. Every time we put ourselves to the side and just do what God's put in front of us, we're getting closer to those suction foot hooves that we want. And we can walk life that we, we trust and we love God and God meets us there and helps us. So David fights brutal combat with the Philistines because it's what he's called to do. We're told in the New Testament, our battles are not of flesh and blood, but are against the powers and principalities of this world. We fight spiritual battles. And we're warriors in fighting spiritual battles. Please don't be a timid warrior. Be ready to get into them and trust that God's going to get you through them. I trod them like dirt in the streets. Like we never memorize this verse, and maybe we should. Maybe we should be thinking of our spiritual battles like, man, I'm going to crush this. And we go about our life with a boldness. Bring it, God. I want to fight the battles. I want to I do the things where I can see my God be legendary even in front of me and as I walk through it. I want his breath to inflame me and kindle my heart. And that is, that's going at life with an absolute offense, right? Not totally always on the defense. God's our defense early in the song, but in verses 38 through 43, God's our offense. We get to go through life boldly. And with courage. And this feels like David, doesn't it? This is the David we've been reading about for three months. When evil goes down, God's people should celebrate that. I'm thrilled we don't kill babies legally, at least in some states in our country. Like, what a great victory. And there's, we should have no shame in celebrating that. That's amazing. At the same token, that means we got some women to take care of that are having some tough times in their life. Are we ready to do that? Because that's part of the battle, too. Mercy, grace, provision. David crushed. Remember who he's crushing are these Philistine Canaanite religions that had child sacrifice, including infant sacrifice. You gave infants to Moloch, right? They had, they had weird, corrupted sexual things under Ashtaroth, right? So when David's crushing these people, he's crushing those altars and those idols, and he's thrilled to do it, happy to get rid of those things. We don't need things in our society like that. And we're happy to shut down a sex shop or two. It's not helping people. And we celebrate some of those things. There were very few vets that came home from World War II that struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an odd thing. Lots of them from Vietnam. Like it was a plague with the Vietnam vets. World War II vets simply didn't have that. They were happy to kill some Nazis. They had great clarity in the moral purpose of World War II. We did not have that clarity in Vietnam. And there's a difference as to how to do that. Clearly, David has moral clarity about killing some Philistines. Like he had no problem killing these people. They were evil and vile. So it's not a thing. We can talk about that too. That's a, I love that discussion. Like weird contrast with the Old Testament and how we do things. Are we happy to win battles for the Lord? Do we, do we relish that? You've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. So verses 38 through 43 are about all the world coming at us. But David had to deal with people in Israel too, remember? Some of his civil wars were internal, right? So there's strivings that happens amongst God's people. You've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. We get a thunderstorm soundtrack with that one. I love it. 
the strivings, like within the Jewish family, there were contentions. Ishbosheth, Absalom, Sheba. He had rebellions he had to deal with. In the church, we get rebellions too. We get people that just go their own way, even within the kingdom. So we deal with those things. You've kept me. David sees that his throne was one God kept. Remember when Absalom rebelled, David just walked out? I don't need it. I'm not going to fight a battle to keep a throne. If he wants the throne, he can have it. And then David never had to lift a hand against Saul to win the throne. He never had to lift a hand against Absalom to get the throne. Like Joab did a bunch of nasty stuff. But David never had to. And David sees that as God kept putting him back on the throne no matter how many times he tried to retire. 1 Kings 2.45, And King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord of Aver. David sees this throne is not his throne. It's God's throne that God established. And when it gets handed off to Solomon, it's still God's throne. And it says it's going to be established forever. So the final verse is one of praise, which bookends verse 4. Verse 4 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I shall be saved from my enemies. And, and then we get to the end here, and it says, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Which, by the way, if you sing that song in a round, that's the other half of the song. So they're taking the beginning and the end of chapter 22, and they turned it into a cute little song. Did we want to sing it? Or, I brought my guitar. The Lord lives, blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. It's God. Not right now, Sam. <laughs> It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me, and he delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Amen? David thinks about the favor God's shown him through his whole life, and he wants to worship that God. I want to worship the God that shows that kind of favor. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Amen. We're not dealing with a dead God or a God that lives in a statue. He's the rock of salvation. He brings back the word sir that he used from the beginning of the, the psalm. Yeshua is timeless. He's powerful. He's victory itself. Behold, I will stand before you there on a rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that my people might drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The image of God as a rock started all the way back with Moses. And David's using that image that when the rock is struck, the pourings pour out of it, or the blessings pour out of it. Moses set that image up. It's God who avenges. All of God's victories, all of David's victories are God's victories. He delivers me. All of David's close calls, God got him through it. You lift me up. All of David's promotions and wins in life were also God's. Those hinds feet that David had where he could charge a troop, that was God's. Therefore, I will give thanks. This is kind of a summary to the song. Like, he has every reason to give thanks in his life. The proper response to God is we just say thank you. Thank you, Lord. The proper response of a kid getting an awesome birthday present is to say thank you, Mom and Dad. That was great. The best thing we can do to God when we're given crazy blessings we don't deserve is just to give that back to the Lord. And sometimes we don't feel like doing that. Our feelings suck, right? When we're supposed to be praising the Lord with everything we have, some days we don't feel like praising the Lord. We have to choose to do it. Like when my kids were young, they never said thank you. Mom and I had to teach them to say thank you. We learn that. It's not in our flesh. So when God does good things and we have a job and we have food in front of us, 
We have a roof over our head. We say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your provision. Each day we have breath in our lungs. I didn't do anything to put that breath in my lungs. But there it is. I'm breathing. I didn't even give myself a life. Proper response to being breathing is to say, thank you, God, for making a world I can breathe in. Like, there's always a level to give praise. And David says, and sing praises. This is, I love how David does this. David's greatest contribution was not winning the throne. Like, Saul had the throne. Solomon had the throne. God would have established Israel with or without David. I'm convinced of that. The major contribution of David is that he instituted a singing aspect to Judaism. Like, Leviticus and Numbers have nothing about worship music. It's with David that he adds this. First Chronicles 15, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers and singers to sing joyful songs, accompanied with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals, joyfully making their voices heard. It's under the Davidic tabernacle that he assigns a group of Levites to be full-time songwriters and singers so that whenever you came to the tabernacle, you would hear the voices of song, 24-7, singing, singing, singing. Like, it had to be beautiful. Right? So David composes most of the songs and hands it. It's like, you don't need to even know how to write music. I'll write the music for you, but I just want it done all the time at the tabernacle. I always want song. The tradition of the Jewish choir goes all the way through the first century. Like you came into the tabernacle and there were Jewish people singing and giving praise to the Lord. The idea that that song became part of the worship of the Jews is wholly devoted to David. And he says here in this psalm, the result of his entire life is he's going to sing his praises to the Lord. That's how he found closeness to the Lord. And even to this day, some of us as believers, it's in song that we feel closest to the Lord. It's in song that we give our thanks the most purely. For others, it's Bible study. For others, it's fellowship. Like we all kind of encounter the Lord in different ways. But David added songs to the list. And he put worship and instituted it as part of the traditions. Paul pointed to this verse when he saw the Gentiles getting saved, and he pointed back to this verse in 2 in Samuel and said, look at the singing that's happening. For Paul, this was evidence that the Holy Spirit was moving outside the Jewish people. One of the indicators of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is where the songs are. I think this is really cool, right? And it's one of the things that Paul thought would make the Jews jealous is that the Christians were writing better music. Right? And it's one of the ways that you know God's spirit has moved on is when the music gets better. Right? So it's not the only evidence, but think of heaven as an image of stadiums full of people singing worship to the Lord. We get that image in the book of Revelation. Have you ever been to a concert where people are just singing worship songs? By the way, City on the Hill is coming up here this week. Get in amongst the people of God where they're just shouting out their praise to the Lord. It's stunning. And I'm not talking about a dry little church where they're singing from an old hymnal and everybody's bored out of their skull. I'm talking about people absolutely giving full praise to the Lord. One of the ways we sacrifice to the Lord is we sit down and study his word. Some of the ways we sacrifice to the Lord is we take time for prayer. Some of the ways we, we, we serve the Lord is we bless other people in the body, right? Fellowship. One of the ways we do it with the Lord is we sing songs to the Lord like David did. And we take that time and it's a way that we can not only bless our own relationship with God, but we can sometimes bless other people, right? Unless you've got really bad rhythm, then it's not a big blessing to other people, but you're still blessed, you know, and God likes a joyful noise, even when it's noise. It's an odd phrase that David ends this with that says, and sing praises to your name, 
That's an odd turn of phrase even in the Hebrew. You don't, you'd think it would say, sing praises to you, sing praises to Yahweh, but it says, sing praises to your name. Now, this is a time when YHWH wasn't written because God's name was too holy to even say it. So throughout the whole Old Testament, they never, how do you sing praises to a name that you don't know yet? And they kept it, they wouldn't write it, they wouldn't speak it, they avoided it in every way they could because it, it was separate from people. But in the chapter 1 of Matthew, he concludes and says, and his name was Jesus, right? It, the whole point is we know the name now. I think David was up in heaven, thrilled when that was happening. Like the heavenly hosts were ignited when Jesus came to earth and we suddenly know the name of who we sing to. David was writing worship songs for a God he didn't know the name of. Today, we actually know the name. So we sing praises to your name. Even when David had to wait to find that out. Verse 51, he's the tower of salvation to his king. That's, how can you be a something to yourself? Right? He's a tower of salvation to his king. David might be talking about like him, right? That he's God's king. But the way he phrases this can be totally messianic too. And shows mercy to his anointed. The word his there is actually not David. It, it should have a capital H in front of it. It's, it's that God is God's own anointed. Like this is absolutely, the way he put this and phrased this is really compelling. To David and his descendants forevermore. There's somebody coming after me. It's not me, David says. It's my descendants and it's forevermore, which is a word for eternity. There's going to be a king, an anointed one of God that will sit on the throne forever. That's who David's going to sing his songs to. I love that David's making worship music for Jesus before Jesus even shows up. Like he kind of got this. And, and the only way I think he's getting that is he's either inspired to write it that way or he's had conversations with the Lord. Anointed is used more in the book of Samuel than any other book. It's a key theme in the book of Samuel. The anointed of God is special and God blesses his name. Also, there's a rite here of marking the priesthood for service. The two roles that get anointed in Jewish tradition are the king and the priest. They're both anointed. They get anointed with oil, an image of God's presence, God's spirit, ruah, being spread on the, on the king and the priest. That showing God's covering and God's blessing over people. We still anoint people today, right? This is just an image of God's blessing in your life. Exodus 40, verse 15. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout your generations. The reason I'm reading that is because the anointing happens to multitudes of people that are set aside for God's service. Yet David's writing to an anointed, the anointed, a singular anointed, right? Even though David knows darn well that the anointed is groups of people. So he's not writing about the Levites here. He's writing about an anointed singular king that will be there forevermore. The unleavened breads were images of the, the body that gets broken. The unleavened bread in Jewish tradition was pierced, so it had little holes in it, like our saltine crackers are basically kosher unleavened bread. And the piercing would happen, and the body would be broken. And Jesus used that as an image of himself. But the wafers were anointed also. They're anointed with oil, the same oil that was used on the priests. Leviticus 7.12 
in Numbers 615, if you want to look at that. The wafers were this image of this pierced body of Christ that would, be, that would be broken for the church or for God's people. The symbolicness of the wafers and the unleavened bread is that they were sinless. Leaven was an image of sin. So when he says the anointed, that's a, a key term that gets used throughout Samuel and throughout the Old Testament. But it's this image of these, this sinless one that would come that had no leaven in it, was pierced, was broken, and it was an image of God's love and God's grace for his people. Savior, Savior, Savior. Savior, exclamation point. One, two, three, three, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three, three. And it comes around at the end of this. God is our Savior. He's the anointed one. God uses the anointed priesthood for song well into the second temple period, right? A song that stands and it grows. Here's a, a passage from the Mishnah. These are Jewish texts about this song. The Mishnah states that Jerusalem's second temple, there were never fewer than 12 Levites standing on the platform as a choir. 12 is representative of the people of God, right? 12 tribes of Judah, 12 disciples. But there was no limit on the maximum number of singers. So never less than 12 singers, but sometimes they'd have the whole choir come out on feast days. Just song whenever you came up to the temple. So that's even better because I get excited about the temple having barbecues from all the peace offerings. You're having this you smell of cooked lamb as you walk up. But now add to the smell of cooked lamb beautiful music that you'd be walking up to these choirs. God's mercy is for everybody that serves. The anointing of God's anointed one is for everybody in God's kingdom. God says yes to the humble and the obedient. He has, he has, he has an eye on the haughty. For 2 Corinthians 1.22, we'll close on this. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes you in Christ and has anointed us to God who also has sealed us and given us his spirits in the hearts as a guarantee. The people of God that are anointed, there's a day when his anointed is going to come and then the end result of that is we all get anointed by the spirit of God. It's our desire to serve the king that gets rooted in this song from David, but it gets played out through all all of history, right? We're looking for groups of people. David ends with forevermore, that mercy unbound that goes through all eternity. There's never less than 12, but you can have multitudes. In Revelation, there will be millions of people praising God at once. That is a joyful noise. That's the rope, that's the thunder of the hills coming back as humanity those remnants of humanity that love the Lord, we gather together and we give the Lord all the praise we're ever capable because God's Holy Spirit goes through us and does what is good, and that is to glorify God. Last verse, he's the tower of salvation to his king. He shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Amen. That's a good song. But we got a couple more verses left in 2 Samuel. We're kind of wrapping up David All the crud David went through at the end of the day, that's his thinking about all of it. That's what life all comes down to, praising the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace. Lord, we are so small. We have so little to offer. But Lord, what we do have to offer, we give to you. We give you all the glory. Lord, we ascribe to you everything good in our life. Lord, we see even in the darkest of times that we've had that you were there and you were a light guiding our path. Lord, you've brought us all together as a body of Christ. You've anointed us with oil. 
Lord, you've brought us into your holy priesthood. All we can do, Lord, is sing your praise and give you glory because you deserve it. Lord, sometimes this world gets pretty dark. And Lord, we see that anytime we turn on the news for more than two minutes. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to lift our eyes and see the cross, that there is a bigger plan going on. And Lord, we know that in all of our troubles, you could, you could breathe a single breath and wipe away the entire planet to get rid of those troubles. Lord, you can stop time. You can move oceans. You can crush walls. And you can trample our enemy. Lord, you can make an army of over 100,000 people disappear in a single night. Lord, you can do anything. So Lord, we give you the glory and all the praise forever and ever. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.